developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Welcome to the Lovejoy Hour, sponsored by those lovely people at Cooker. 100 degree boiling hot water, straight from your kitchen tap. Um, so happy they sponsor this. Uh, very cool company, great product, great ethos, lovely people, and uh, they, their product is fantastic. They've got a new black one actually out a tap, uh, and if ever I get a new one, I'm going to get the black one. I think that was really super cool um by the way they also support our online show health fitness and how to navigate life um a new one is out now with you and thomas ex-athlete 400 meter runner um it talks about health and it talks about fitness and it talks about how to navigate your way through life i think you'll thoroughly enjoy it uh, the one with jason fox went down very well uh 110,000 views or something on youtube so people seem to like it um which is big on YouTube, I believe. So uh, get involved in that if you can. And uh, if you uh, fancy, if you can afford it, I'd get a cooker tap. They're amazing. I really are. Brilliant bit of kit. Um, go to cooker.co.uk uh, to look at the models and see the price range. Um, uh, cooker spelled Q-U-O-O-K-E-R. So today's hour, I'm curious about whether you're thinking clearly. Now, we all know none of us are thinking clearly. We all know life is an illusion. It's all about perception. We all know our thoughts are full of bias and uh, we have ridiculous thought processes, but we're just human and we're just trying to stay alive. That's kind of the deal, isn't it? You're here and you're trying to say you have very, very few, very small amounts of control over what you're doing. It's all sort of like you've got an inbuilt computer which is navigating you through. And some of these thoughts are a little bit wayward. Anyway, um, Marion Franco and Matt Warren have written a book, Are You Thinking Clearly? 29 Reasons Why You Aren't and What to Do About It. Everything from love, uh, getting old, bias, as I said, uh, whether your parents fucked you up, etc., etc. Uh, let's tell me, I'll tell you a bit about the Miriam Franco is an experienced freelance science journalist and a science editor for. Uh, the Conversation, a media organization that delivers research-based news and analysis articles to a global audience of tens of millions. He's written publications, written for publications like The New Scientist, etc., etc. Uh, Matt Warren has worked as a journalist for over 20 years. He has been an award-winning magazine editor, written for numerous newspapers, works feature editor for the Daily Mail, um, and authored books for Lonely Planet. He now works on special projects for The Conversation. They put this book together. Um, fascinating stuff, actually. I learned a lot. Obviously, they've done a lot of research and um, brought a lot of information together and put it in a nice package for us to understand. And uh, I learned a lot. And I def de definitely want to talk about love. 
I thought that was quite interesting. It kind of changed my opinion on the way we uh, partner up and things that happen there. Let's meet them. Anyway, uh, here's uh, Miriam and Matt. Hello, Miriam. Hello, Matt. How are you? Great, thanks. Very well. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Right, let's get straight into this. Um, Why did you do the book? Hmm. I think we've always... Well, we've spent a lot of time discussing these things, how how to think well. And I think one of the things that got us interested is in that people quite like a simple explanation. You know, there's one way to think well, if it's mindfulness or positive thinking or, you know, exercising and eating well, you know, that kind of really helps us think better or be happier. But actually human beings are incredibly complex and so there are so many factors that affect how we think and we kind of wanted to dig into that like each one of us will have our own set of thinking traps essentially and so writing something where people could take from it what is important to them and what they should pay attention to yeah we also work at the conversation so we specialize as journalists working with academics and helping them Um, explain their research to the general public and we've always felt that was a bit like working in a in a sweet shop with jars full of you know humbugs and cola cubes but instead of the sweets it's bits of knowledge ideas and so we wanted to bring all that together um, into one book. So why 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 have you done it together is it hard to do it together is it hard writing a book with two of you doing it? I think on top of a full-time job, it was quite good that there were two of us. And also, they were kind of freestanding chapters, so we could just write sort of half each. It's also quite good if you're writing a book about that includes lots on bias or muddled thinking. It's quite good to have someone who can challenge your own biases and your own muddled thinking. Indeed. um, Rather than settle into your own little comfortable echo chamber. Yeah, and that, that's I think that's the thing which comes across in your book so much is is how biased how how our brains are all about perception, and how um, we've sort of been programmed with ways of thinking and so, so, but it's not necessarily the best for us, is it? The way we think and the way we see things, and yeah, I'd, I'd go as far to say sometimes if you're a bad person, it might not necessarily be your fault and i i I use the the word bad in a in a in a loose way because obviously there's varying degrees of bad but but sometimes it might not be your fault might it might be the programming you've had or or a medical condition there's a vast array of factors sort of competing for your um your bandwidth, your mental bandwidth and your attention and it's kind of remarkable that any of us managed to function at all (laughs) <laughs> so as you say I think it's we're doing we're all doing a wonderful job and we all think chaotically sometimes and we all get muddled and we all make stupid decisions and that's totally normal we're not trying to come up with one quick fix but rather telling people about some of the factors that may be doing that yeah I think one of the big things um I, I thought whilst reading your book is is when you realize that you're not actually really in control of yourself or your thoughts you know I mean you can't I can't 
tell you what I'm going to think next. It's just come. And where's that yeah. come from? It's come from programming from years, my parents and my society and the news, the media and everything else. And and also, I suppose there's a little bit of me in there. I don't know which bit is me, but there's a very small bit. But I'm not really in control of what's coming into my head. And I think once you realize that you're not really in control of what's coming to you, it's kind of a bit of a release. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. when I do have some bad thoughts, which I know I never do, no one ever does, but sometimes when I do, I think, well, maybe that's not my fault. Maybe that's programming from a long time ago or something I've witnessed or something I've seen. And, I, I, and I, how much do you think we have free will and how much? Is it all programming, do you think? Um, well, I think, I mean, one of the take-home messages from the book is that you can actually change a lot of that. Like if you are, for example, when something pops into your head, it might be based on a gut feeling. And it's just like a really strong feeling that this is right. And you don't really know why because you haven't thought it through properly. But if you kind of know yourself, your emotional history, your sort of habits of thinking, um, you can sort of understand better where that feeling is coming from. You know, I've always had this experience. Like if, if I've always had a really hard time with people, maybe you know, I've been bullied or whatever, um, I might have sort of a pessimism about people uh, that might not like lead me to interpret the situation in, in a certain way. Like if you can understand these little things about yourself and your history, uh, sometimes when a thought pops into your head, it makes more sense. Um, yeah. So you can sort of try, by trying to get to know yourself better, uh, you can get more insights into why a certain thought pops into your head. I, I suppose it's getting to know your biases. So it's getting mm -hmm. to know why you feel, think the way you think and, and and why it is that 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 when those thought processes come in then I suppose you can start talking on thinking about doing something about it. I, the big one which I, I discuss in my intro by the way uh, is is love um and that's the one which made the biggest impact on me reading this because I, I like regular listeners to this podcast will know that I, I'm not a lover of the word love because it's used just to bully and manipulate and everything else. But you've actually tried to analyze what love is now. I know all the great uh, philosophers have tried to do this and, <laughs> and failed miserably because it's such a hard thing, isn't it, to actually understand what love is. But actually what I loved about the, the writing in, in your book is you sort of take a part, a part of it and look at the science behind what we would call love. Um, can you explain a bit about that? Well, certainly the science seems to show that there's, you know, and I think this will, many of your listeners will recognise this, is that there's often, at least with romantic love, um, you know, two fairly clear phases. There's this sort of early passionate honeymoon period. And then there's that sort of longer, deeper love um, that you begin to experience maybe a year to 18 months afterwards. And to some degree, these are reflected in the in the chemistry and makeup of the brain. So certain parts of the brain are activated or deactivated in that early phase of love. And, you know, some of it makes sense. The amygdala, for example, which are two little almond-shaped structures in the, in the very primitive part of your brain, they perhaps become more active in those early phases of love, in that early phase of love. And that can explain perhaps some of the anxiety that you feel. Um, you're potentially looking around for potential threats. Maybe you become a little bit jealous. Um, and then these things, some of these functions become a little bit more muted over time as you settle into, um, into longer term love. 
we're also programmed to be deeply biased about um, our own partner. And our brain sort of dupes us into believing that they're better than they are, actually. Um, mm. And this is tested scientifically as well. Um, that's the that's the shallow cool. that's the shallow how thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you're looking. You're, I love it in your in your book because you talk about you're looking at your partner and you're going, "This, she, he's the best person ever in the world." And your mates yeah. and family are going, "What?" <laughs> but you ignore them. You can't. You've you've become fixated by this person, and and yeah. you can't and, see a problem with them. And it sort of makes sense, you know. If, you know we we are meant to have babies and procreate and if you keep going rationally no they are a little bit better you never get anywhere mm. you have to kind of have that feeling to yeah. go well well yeah just go on sorry sorry Matt. yeah in a, in a, in a piece actually we'd commissioned for the conversation before this as well someone said of course you know we we can talk about the science of love and the chemistry that happens in the brain but it is always going to be quite elusive because nature doesn't want a really simple system to explain love in the brain because otherwise predators for example could act like anglerfish and dupe you into falling in love with them before they devour you Amazing. so it's always going to be quite a complex system so yeah we wouldn't claim to understand the science completely on this on this topic and perhaps it never will be but there are there do seem to be sort of themes um, what's, that explain the, the evolution of it What's interesting is um, I, I remember uh, reading, and I, I've done it on my podcast actually. There's, I can't remember the number now. It's something like there's eight things that people mistake for love, mm-hmm. and I've always had this 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 thing. It's like one of them's dependency. You know, that's another one's lust. And then after reading your book, I realised that no, these are parts of it because yeah. if you're not engaging in those things, then it's pretty hard to procreate say let's talk about like uh, like we're animals here and uh, mm. to, to, to get rid of the complexities and the nuance of it if we wanted to procreate it's like so so as you say you need kind of an element of lust because otherwise you're you're not going to get aroused to have sex with this person then then you need an element of um dependency because if we're not we've got to bring a child up if we if we've done it then you need a bit of um jealousy and envy because you've got to stop that person from wandering off because you've you've selected them male or woman or whatever and so i suppose these are all the elements now what we have is varying degrees of them and uh, as dr giles yosel on this uh, a, a podcast when we were talking about um, diet and, and and being hungry we have no idea how hungry somebody else is in comparison to us yeah. and thus we know ha- no idea how much their lust is in comparison to us or their jealousy or their you know dependency we just don't know and we don't know how hard these are but you you've often see people in these ridiculous situations where the the jealousy bit has just gone up you know to 11 and yeah. they're just ruining their lives aren't they so but, yeah. but i suppose they're all elements you know from reading your book i sort of saw these are all elements you need to make probably a successful a couple to 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 bring a child into the into the uh into the world would you th- see it that way yeah yes i think so i think um many of these things are uh many of them are uh, all of these things are um can be maladaptive, i.e. they cause you trouble and they cause you, at one level, evolutionary problem. (laughs) They they prevent you finding partners um, and they damage your survival chances or they can be adaptive. Um, So, for example, uh, 
you can be a very anxious person. Um, but perhaps I am. Um, and I think Miriam is as well. We're both quite anxious. Mm. But in many ways, you know, that's a, that's a evolutionary survival mechanism as well. It keeps it makes you alert to the threats around you. It it increases your chances of staying alive, probably. And probably nature doesn't care that much about whether you feel content or happy. Um, and there's a very good <laughs> you are not meant to be happy by Rafa Uber, who's a psychiatrist we interview for the book on another chapter. Um, Having said that, of course, these things can be adaptive. Yes, anxiety can make you alert to threats and keep you alive. But at the same time, it can become maladaptive and ruin your life if it gets out of control. And I've experienced it going that badly. Mm. So, you know, all yeah. of these things, yeah, they play multiple roles. Yeah. And you talk and about the... Sorry, go on, Mary. No, just that feeling of uh, the infatuation, sort of being in love, that initial phase doesn't last very long because once you've had your baby evolution doesn't care how <laughs> you know you have other things that keep you together basically than- yeah well i imagine i imagine the chemicals and the emotions and everything changes because once you've had the had the baby then uh, human babies are crap because of the nature of our great big heads we're born, <laughs> we're born <laughs> yeah we're, we're born with them soft so we have to stay together you know we like a i don't know a, a, a baby a calf or something will get up and walk within a couple of hours we're we're we, we don't walk for a year or so so it's mm-hmm. like yeah. you know we're, we're crap at feeding ourselves so you know we can't we need to we need parents and i suppose evolution has made it so we've got these sort of things going on inside us to keep us together for x number of years so we can bring this this child up together because it's a pretty tough ask for one person just to bring up a child yeah. so and and I'm not sure how much we live in communities enough that we these days, especially, but you know, back in the day, even that we could do it on our own. I think I think we're looking for some. Talk about the, the the angelfish thing. The other the, the other bit I read in your in in the love bit is um, you're looking for someone like yourself, and that intrigued me. That because I've read a bit about narcissism recently and how people mirror you. And everyone, I imagine everyone's been in that relationship where they go, God, we're so perfect together. And then when you split up, you go, what? I have nothing in common with that person. What on <laughs> earth happened? And for that initial period of time, you try and mirror each other a bit, don't you? You know, we've all been in a, a bar or a nightclub or something and had a conversation with someone and thought, I don't really agree with this, but I'll go along with it, you know, <laughs> because I quite, you know, we're all drunk and we fancy each other. And I think that mirroring thing or looking for someone like yourself, there is a game being played out, isn't there? So there's, there's a bit where you're looking for it and there's a bit where you're going, I better, better pretend I'm like this person to get yeah. to, the, to, 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 the, to the next stage. That, that's true, right? Yeah. That's true. And it also, it also, I think it, it, it fill trickles out into all sorts of things. So, you know, people obviously want to be liked. They want to be part of a group. They want approval. Um, and so we'll often change our opinions based on those around us. Friends and family are actually probably one of the biggest, um, uh, one of the biggest hindrances, obstacles to thinking for ourselves, if you like, you know, because we will adapt to their points of view, whether that's a lover or um or whatever uh but also we're really bad at knowing it seems why we make decisions at all um so for example there was a really good experiment which highlighted uh, a phenomenon called choice blindness where people were shown two cards of two people and they were asked which one do you find most attractive 
and they'd give their answer. And then the um, the researcher who used a clever kind of magic trick to swap the cards, then presented them with the card that they didn't choose. But it looked like that's the one they actually chose. Um, and the, not only did they not go, hang on, that's not the person I chose. They actually started justifying why they made that choice, mm -hmm. why they yeah. found that perfect person attractive. So, yeah, there's all sorts of weird phenomenon going on. Yeah, in that chapter, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you sort of, um, uh, as I think you've implied there, is that you don't actually have your own thoughts. You have the thought of the group, potentially, and the group that you're in. Mm. And so it depends, what again, what you've been exposed to. And I've found myself being, uh, since I've done this podcast, I've found it very easy to change my mind on things because that's the stance I want to take. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you could change my mind on something now if you wanted to, one of my, uh, my <laughs> one, one of my opinions. You could go, okay, what about this? And and I and I'd be malleable to try and my mind's malleable enough to try and change it, but but often people are stuck in their way of thinking because yeah. of of where they grew up or what they're what they've been um, what they've been exposed to. It's it's incredible that you because you do think your opinions are are, are so thought through, rational. rational, yeah. But you know, in these experiments, you they they prove constantly that your thought processes are just the thing you're coming up with to get on in life, aren't they? Yeah. I think that's that that is one of the things that really is a take home message. Like if you're not willing to ever change your mind, it's going to be very hard to improve your thinking, because if you can't challenge what you're thinking, how are you going to improve it? You know, you you really have to sometimes just listen to other people, listen to other viewpoints, have new experiences. Part of the problems that we talk about a lot about habits is people always do the same thing. They listen to the same they read the same media, listen to the same outlets, uh, go on the same social media channel with the same people, uh, do the same thing every day. Because we are a lot of many of us are creatures of habits and we like to do the same thing. But ultimately, if you never experience anything new, it's actually quite difficult to change your mind because you don't realize that maybe in some uh, context, you're the outlier. You know, you just every, everyone around you has the same viewpoint. It's like the whole whole echo chamber thing. Mm. Um, so being willing to change your mind is probably the best way to actually improve your thinking. But what's scary about where we are in modern society at the moment is the connectivity and the 24-hour news and everything. If you just look over the pond at America, which is an extreme version of it, you've got one news channel, which is far right. They have no interest in the facts. They've just got their ideology. And CNN seems to be left, and they've got their ideology. And there's there's, there's nothing sort of sitting around in the middle now. They've, they've, managed, they've managed to separate themselves so much. So you basically, in America, you're picking a team and a side, and it's absolutely pointless. And But we're going more down that avenue, in, uh, down that road in, in, in Britain as well. So it's, it's kind of scary. One of the um, – we wrote a slightly more philosophical chapter called Do You Believe in Evil?, which – touches on some of these issues um, and potentially this belief, this storytelling about good and evil, it, you know, is behind a lot of the, uh, a lot of the polarization in the world today. Um, almost by calling someone evil, you are um, justifying your own actions against them. Mm. Uh, you justifying your own actions. You are by definition then good. You are then in, by definition, good, and probably we should, um, and that really reinforces these us and us and them narratives, um, where in actual fact people are good, uh, capable of good deeds and they're capable of bad deeds, and rather than talking about good or bad people, we should perhaps talk about individual 
um, individual deeds, individual actions instead. Um, uh, because we often do have common ground, uh, but we just have to fight very hard to find it. Yeah, and uh, I, the, the, one of the last podcasts I did a couple of weeks ago was How Modern Media Destroys Our Mind, which is a fantastic book. Uh, if you get a chance, I'd read it. But the the news has set themselves up to good and evil, yeah. and, mm. uh, and and they're outing the monsters, but they will never find out why the monster became a monster yeah. or, yeah. you know, to trace back. And as we're discussing here, there's something generally created that most people aren't born just pure evil. Something's yeah. create created it. And and they never go to bother doing that. It's just like, here's the evil. We're the saviors. You keep watching us and we're all reading us and we'll find all these monsters for you and make your lives better and a safer way. And, we, and we're buying into it all constantly because we can't help not to because we're only, again, we're only machines and animals and we're just looking for the worst because we're trying to keep stay alive, right? And that's kind of kind of the way it goes another interesting bit of your book well i suppose we can come back to that in a minute actually because i want to talk about brain tumors and things like that but but um uh one of the interesting things you just discuss is memory i've interviewed dr julia shaw on this and you quote her in your book Uh, and it's this is fantastic isn't it that the idea that your your memory (laughs) it's not real you know we try our hardest to make it real but it really isn't and she she explains that a lot our our memories are problematic aren't they Yes. Um, I mean, like so many, we all have these completely made up memories. And even the memories that aren't made up are edited throughout our lifetimes. If you think about something and you're in a certain mood or you have certain beliefs, you'll remember it that way. Even about yourself, like if I see myself as, a, I don't know, a, a a team player, you know, I might remember decisions or situations in which I I see myself as having been a team player, but maybe I wasn't. It's just how I want to see myself is going to affect how I remember it. And mm-hmm. we're very vulnerable to people just saying, oh, remember when that happened? Remember, remember that party you went to when actually you didn't go? But if people around us are sure it happened, you know, we're so vulnerable to starting to actually remember it. And yeah, that's that's been shown in great research by Julia Shaw, uh, Elizabeth Loftus, um, how how easy it is to manipulate us and the scariest thing about it is that we're actually more likely to have a false memory about someone like we don't agree with so they did this the study on um around the time of the um referendum on abortion um in ireland and uh people were the researchers planted fake stories among media clippings to to these participants. And if you sort of were um, uh, for free abortion, you know, you were more likely to remember a fake story that 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 actually happened about the other campaign and vice versa. So I think it's when we remember stuff, it's really good to try to be aware of the fact that how we feel, what mood we're in, what opinions and beliefs we are, are have all are going to affect how we remember something and be very, very humble about the quality of our memories. Um, it's a difficult one. It's just how our brains work. Um, you know, we, 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 we are creative people. You know, we're constantly reworking stuff in our minds but at the same time um we are not always right and we have very bad recollections of the past 
Yeah, again, I think we're trying to remember stuff that will keep us alive, and that's the most important thing. I've done this experiment since interviewing Dr. Julia Shaw. Um, I've said to two friends that um, when I met them, I said to one of them, I, I was wearing clown shoes, do you remember? And she was going, no, you didn't. I said, no, I did. And another one, I said I was wearing pink Haviana um, flip-flops. Now, the, the, <laughs> problem with, the problem with this is, and they both they both denied it, but every time I see them, I say, do you remember when I was wearing my clown shoes? Do you remember where I was wearing my pink? Now, in my mind, that's all I see. So I've got rid of the shoes that I was wearing and I can only see that now. And yeah. I believe they're seeing it as well. Even though they know it's not true, that's the visualization comes. As soon as I mention it, I can do it. And it's, I, you know, I said it some half a dozen times just as an experiment and it works. So, I mean, the good news about memory is you can change it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, some of the memories, you, some of the faultiest memories are often those that you remember most frequently. Um, yeah. Because they 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 get edited they get they yeah you're you're essentially laying them down again and editing it's almost becomes like a yeah they, they yeah they fade and evolve over time yeah memory's a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy runs out of ink yeah it does yeah definitely my memory jesus uh, and uh, like you say you know one of the we rely on these things for our our, our survival i mean we yeah. are past tense where our our histories, our memories uh, is a sort of repository of information that we rely on to make our decisions in the present, you know, who yeah. we are, what we think. I remember how it played out last time. And yet, you know, this library is full of slightly dodgy text that hasn't been yeah. properly referenced. And uh, people have been in there changing some of the pages completely. Tell me about who you are. Um, I'm obsessed with learning about things. I think everyone is actually, but I just, I just got a better way of. I've just, I'm privileged because I could do podcasts and and I, and I just read a hell of a lot of books now because I, I'm interested in learning all this knowledge about stuff. But, but did was it because you got the job that you became fascinated in the way we think, or were you fascinated about the way you think? So you, so you went for the sort of the sort of work you did. Um, I think we always, both always really liked thinking. Like, I think we've both been accused multiple times in our past since we were children of thinking too much, overthinking, not going with the flow. Uh, so I think that was quite natural <laughs> to be interested in thinking because we like thinking and we know that we're sometimes bad at it. You know, um, do, you, do you think? Do you think you're sorry to interrupt you? Do you think you're uh, outliers? Do you think you guys are standing on the edge of the village? I, I often think, uh, like today, it's exam results. One of my mates has been texting me about, uh, well, in a WhatsApp group about the A level results, and all I can think of is how poor our education system is. And I have to stop myself trying to engage with everyone about why we're doing this because it seems so pointless to me. This, you know, the the the, the, the amount of stress and work the kids do for the results that for for the outcome seems pointless to me there must be a much more uh nutritious way of educating our children to make it exciting and give them better better skills to going into an adult world so i'm desperate to engage it but all they're going is well done to your little charlie or whatever (laughs) and i feel bad that every time i see something i go i want to pick it apart and analyze it and work out what we're doing matt are you like that um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I, I'm an outlier because I don't know enough about other people to make a comment on that, really. But I do. I do think through. I, I do. I probably. I, 
we were talking earlier about adaptive and maladaptive. And when I was at school, I remember very clearly being told, you think too much. You know, that's why you're anxious. That's why you want to break rules. That's why you want to do this, that and the other. Um, and I think it, you know, I think that's wrong. I don't, on one level, I love thinking about things. I love being challenged. I know I get completely lodged and stuck in echo chambers just like everyone else, but I do like to consider why I'm in there and whether I can possibly get myself out of them. But at the same time, <laughs> I suppose that teacher who told me I think too much had a point as well, because it's not, it's not necessarily the highway to happiness. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes you can overthink things but I think on the whole you know we all we do have these wonderful organs in our head and we'd all benefit from you know challenging some of their lazier elements and uh and and exploring ourselves um so, but, you, but, you, but you say that 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 uh, you think too much and stuff and I've I've constantly thought if I just could just stop thinking then I could switch it all off and all that. However, you know, reading your book, you, you read things like, and, and, I, and I've read it before, but I love, you know, you've got a new look on everything. You've done, actually, you've done a lot of research on this book. How long did it take you to put it together? About a year, I think. Yeah, Maybe. from start to finish, 18 months. Yeah, okay, yeah. Did you enjoy the process? Most of the time. <laughs> well, right. we won't. Okay. <laughs> but but um, look at Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. But looking at happiness, you've got a chapter on which we can, we can start talking about in a minute. But, you know, I, I spent years doing what everybody else does, which is going, I'm looking for happiness. Mm. And then after a while, it's through reading and learning and thinking and everything. I realized that that's such a fruitless task, because even mm. if, if I love chocolate, I, I know for a fact, because I learned it at school of the um, diminishing economics, whatever rule, diminishing, what's it called? Diminishing returns, something yeah. that if you keep, I like beer, one beer is good, two beers good, three beers, 10 beers is terrible. I'm, I'm falling over. <laughs> you know, it's like that, that's it. One bit bar of chocolate's good. Two bars of chocolate. All right. Three, four, five, I'm puking up. So the happiness doesn't, doesn't last. So and, and I'm so stupid that it took me all these years to realize that the pursuit of happiness is so ridiculous an idea that actually it should be the pursuit of not being unhappy. So you should be content and try to try to eliminate as much unhappiness as you can and aim for being content. And every now and then you get a little beer or a little bit of chocolate. <laughs> you get a little bit of happiness and you just love that because it happens. But it's being so strive to not be unhappy. And, and I've got millions of ways of doing that, but you know, and and one of the biggest being, if you're unhappy, no, it's going to change in a minute because everything does change. So just hang out there and try and try and enjoy watching it because it's going to change. Like everything, eventually changes. But yeah, so yeah, so that. But go on, sorry, Miriam. No, I was just going to say, even moments of unhappiness aren't always bad because you know, we might learn something about ourselves or what we need or want, you know, there's a reason for it. Of course, it's not good to be depressed, uh, for, you know, but moments of unhappiness aren't necessarily something we always have to panic about, 
you know. Sometimes you yeah. just have an afternoon, you feel a bit down, you don't feel inspired. Uh, you know, it's, it might be telling you something. But you point out in the book, don't you, that you can't you can't sustain happiness, can you? Yeah, this is, uh, I mentioned him earlier, Rafa Uber, who's, uh, who wrote a book called You Are Not Meant to Be Happy, and he's a psychiatrist, and he sees this, you know, frequently as, there is a there is a cult of happiness. We are told that it's something we can reach. That there's a formula for it, and in actual fact, that's complete nonsense. Uh, <laughs> I, going back to what we were saying before about adaptive and maladaptive, you know, even if we consider, are we supposed to be happy? Well, if we were happy all the time, would we have evolved at all? You know, unhappiness, a desire to strive for something different a fidgetiness, a discontent is often what drives us to get that better job mm. or to, you yeah. know, to take up a new hobby, to try different things. And, um, you know, that drives us forward. Whereas, you know, Brave New World, classic example, there's a society that is programmed and educated to be happy. And if that fails, they take the drug Soma. Um, but really, is that is that being human? To be human is to experience the full kaleidoscope of emotions. And when we do feel a bit down, obviously, um, anxiety can spiral out of control and become hugely maladaptive. But, you know, feeling anxious sometimes when there's a good reason for it is a good thing. And um, we should we should look at uh, we should look at why we're experiencing these things and not necessarily. In fact, we should never feel like we're a failure because we're not Mm. happy all the time. Also remembering that feeling discontent or irritated or, or whatever yeah. can actually spurs into action. And like with Brave New World, if you just take a pill and feel happy, you know, you might, there are a lot of things that humanity has achieved might not have happened because we were just sitting, sitting around yeah. listening to the bumblebees and, you know, yeah. Nice. What does adaptive and maladaptive mean? Well, whether, whether they're actually, you know, beneficial or not or damaging. Right, okay. All right. Um, in, interestingly, interestingly, humans um, talking about striving. Uh, I, I I can't remember where I heard or read this the other day. I, I, I listen and read so much stuff, but it might have actually been in your book. But but we're we're um, we're very good at wanting to learn new things, and it actually makes us happy. So if you're stuck in it, I think that's why golf becomes so big when people get older. Because you know, when you're a kid, you play football or something like that, and you've got all the energy. When you get older, you're getting crap at football because you haven't got the speed, you haven't got any of that sort of stuff. So you take up golf, and I think then you go, I'm actually getting better at this because it's such a complex game, really, that mm. it's it, 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 the more you play, the better you're going to get. That's kind of the, the reward you get from it. So people take it up, and that's why they do it, because they're getting better. Then you reach a ceiling where you're getting worse, and you have to give that up and <laughs> take up something else, cycling or something, I don't know. And that, that <laughs> and I think, I think as humans, we like to keep on taking things up because yeah. it – it, it, it makes us feel good about ourselves to be improving rather mm. than declining. And declining is always a, a reminder that you're getting old. I do, yeah, I do feel sometimes, though, we've, we forget uh, about the thinking and the improving the mind. I think uh, it's sometimes to some people it's easier to come, maybe focus on your body, exercise, nutrition. Those things are yeah. huge, right? You know, focusing on your breathing, your lungs. 
and maybe not focusing so much about what's going on in your head because it's it's messy and it can make you unhappy and it can make you anxious and so forth. Um, and, you know, it is great to do exercise and, and eat well and all that is great for your mind, but it doesn't on its own make you great at thinking or make you do, you know, to make yeah. better decisions because you actually also have to do you can't avoid thinking you also have to do a bit of thinking and you can become better at thinking you can become aware aware of your shortcomings and um all the things we list in the book to try to think a bit better and a bit more clearly as well mm. so my, the biggest in, the biggest thing i think about constantly at the moment is time and and you've got a great chapter on that in the book and and it's actually the first chapter, I believe. And and yeah. time is the one commodity that I don't, I can't, I can't it, it's going to run out eventually, but I just don't know when it is. I've got a death chart on my fridge, which has, um, uh, <laughs> it's got, it's got a red dot for every month I've been alive. And then it's got, um, it's signposted where the uh, life expectancy was when I was born. And, uh, and then there's another one with life expectancy now, because obviously it's gone up since I've been alive. And uh, it's quite scary because most of my life is red dots now. So I've only got a little bit, which isn't, which is a little, there's a dot for every month. And all my mates say that's sick. And I go, no, it, it is the most, but it's the best thing ever. Cause I look at it every day and I go, Hey shit, those dots, are those white dots, there's not as many as the red dots. So, I, you know, someone says to me, do you want to do something? And I don't want to do it. I just go, no, I've only got a few dots left. I'm not wasting it on doing some <laughs> crap you want me to do. And, and that's also the way I've been working as well. So I get offered a job and I don't want to do it. I'm just like, I don't give a shit about the money. I've only got so yeah. many dots left. So, so that's why I do it. But, but time is just like, and, and there's this fact in your book, which is the scariest thing that I've ever read. And it's horrific. You know, the, the idea that time goes faster as mm. you get older. And, and often they say it's because it's the fraction of your life. Um, and so a day becomes a much smaller fraction of yeah. your life. And, and, the, and the stat you've got here, which was done by uh, a guy called uh, Kit Yates, is that yeah. uh, if you're looking at this perspective, the period between your fifth and is it ninth birthdays would appear to pass at the same rate as the decades between your 40th and 80th birthdays. Oh, that is just so bad because <laughs> cause I feel I'm on this runaway train. And it's like yeah. every time I look around, I'm like, holy shit, how old are we all getting? It's really weird. I found it. I found it accelerated at a terrifying pace after forty, which seems to be. I'm now definitely very much on the super highway to uh, to the end. But yeah, that, uh, there are lots of theories about this, and that was a really interesting one. That it, you know, that was uh, Kit Yates, as you said, in a logarithmic perspective. Um, but it also seems that um, time it, time speeds up speeds up in retrospect i.e how you've experienced it after it's happened um when your life is full of the familiar um so if you have lots of habits and routines uh life when you look back on it can seem to have sped by whereas if it's full of rich experiences even though life as time as you experience it will seem to fly by you know time flies by when you're having fun when you look back on it you'll have more memories and it will be your your picture of your past will be much denser and will therefore feel longer. So it, if you are getting on a bit like me, um, then I, I to have as many novel experiences as possible is a good thing. And this may be partly why children feel that time 
you know, for example, their summer holiday goes on forever. Because as a child, you are surrounded by novel experiences. You are encountering things for the first time, whether it's your first trip to the seaside or your first chocolate ice cream or whatever it is. Everything is new. By the time you get to our age, uh, things are a bit more familiar. Um, yeah, and it was quite obvious in, in the lockdowns, like people were sitting at home doing the same thing every day, having their Zoom quiz time, whatever, uh, their their bread baking or whatever we were doing. We didn't have so much option of going out meeting new people. So it was all tended to be the same thing over and over. And that, that kind of just sped past for even though it felt like forever when you were in it, when you look back. It just went by it's an empty frighteningly space. quickly. Yeah, it feels we... like someone just stole two years from mm. me. You know, when I had my last birthday, it was like, no, I'm two years younger than that. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, actually, but... it was lockdown and I didn't do anything other than, you know, cook baked beans on toast and watch Netflix. I've got to that age where I've um, started, <laughs> I've started, people ask me my age and I have to actually bother calculating it now because I can't remember it. I'm like, hold on, what year was I born? And I was just doing that sort of stuff. Though with age comes um, wisdom. And uh, as long as you're, I think as long as you're playing to the age you are, as in living the life that you're supposed to live. So if I'm trying to play football at my age, I'm going to feel really, really old. Whereas if I'm, I'm going back to golf here. If I'm playing golf, I feel all right because <laughs> because uh, older gentlemen can do it, you know. So it's like it's and and so I spend a lot of time doing this sort of stuff, podcasting and talking about philosophy and stuff. And it's a good age to do that. At. If I tried to do this at 20, I just wouldn't be interested. I was just mm. like, oh, where where are the girls at and the football and the and the music and the, you know that's that's all I cared about. So you know, I think you just got to move through life. Um, uh, there's a couple more. <clears throat> Actually, before we move on from that, tell, tell us quickly about the cave experiment because that blew me away. That's that's amazing, isn't it? How how our perception of time is, is so skewed by by things, you know? Yeah, this was a French researcher called Christian Clot, and uh, he took a team into a cave, and the idea was that um, they would be completely cut off from time. Um, it was called the deep time experiment. Um, so they didn't have watches and they didn't have uh, the visual cues like the rising and setting of the sun, etc. Um, and what, what they discovered was that um, time to them changed completely. And um, they thought they'd been, so they settled into, some of them settled into a day becoming like 48 hours long. Um, I think in one case, 60 hours long. So they would sleep and wake within a 60-hour period rather than a 24-hour period. Um, so without watches, they settled into their own distinct rhythms of time. And they it was a similar sort of effect uh, replicated at the end that when they looked back on it, um, they, it, it, they thought every the time had gone past much quicker than it actually had. Their amount of time in the cave had gone by more quickly than it had. And that was partly because they didn't have all these new things around them. They had very very few sort of visual cues and very few novel experiences. They were just doing research in the cave. So, yeah, he, um, he had some wonderful findings, which are still to be published, but it really went to show how, how time, uh, our experience of time, our perception of time mutates and changes depending on the environment we're in. 
Yeah, our concept of time is so so bizarre. It's uh, you, in, in the book you say that they ended up um, working longer hours and yeah. Uh, uh, yeah and um, yeah so so and getting more done. Um, like I want to move on because uh, there's a few things I want to talk about. One of the things that's always interested me is um, since I started doing this podcast and stuff, I've always sort of you know as we um, said at the beginning, how much is at me and how much is at everything else and. And there's, as well as my thought processes, my bias and my upbringing and my media input, uh, the media coming into me and everything else, there's also a fact of how healthy my brain is as well. And, and if things can affect that. Now, um, I've been on a psilocybin trial. You mentioned in your book, actually, that psilocybin trial. I've been on that, the yeah. one with um, uh, David Nutt. Well, I, well, I, was actually on, I was actually on that. And I think they uh, found out that um, when you go and have psilocybin, you're a great experience, though. All my... my um, uh, what do you call them? Hallucinations, whatever. They were all very dark, but it was a beautiful experience. But um, <laughs> it opened up more, uh, more uh, connections in my brain. Yeah. My brain self-exposed yeah. because they were doing MRI scans on me and stuff like that. Yeah. So our, our, our brain changes constantly. So even that we're not in control of. And there's a there's an example in your book about brain tumors and how they can affect your personality and the way you think. My granddad had a brain tumor. He was the moodiest person in the world. We didn't know why. He'd fallen over, banged his head. They looked in his brain, saw a brain tumor, cut out, and he went back to being a nice person again. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's it's that weird thing of, of um, how much impact something like that will have on your brain. We can't actually see what's going on in our brain, can we? Not really, no, um, unless we um, scan it. But um, structural changes in the, you know, we often think about uh, chemical changes in the brain, but structural ones are, uh, evidently can af- affect the way we think. Um, obviously, there's the, the case of Mo Molum, who was Northern Ireland secretary in Tony Blair's government. And uh, we spoke with um, her doctor. And she had a um, she had a brain tumor across the frontal lobes, and this would be, as the doctor said, consistent with um, uh, less inhibition and more gregariousness. And obviously, Mo Molum played a you know a key role in bringing peace to Northern Ireland and at least doing the groundwork for securing the Good Friday Agreement. And her gregariousness and her lack of inhibition was actually cited. Um, as a key component in this, you know, in Northern Ireland, where there were lots of kind of very polarised politicians and that that personality sort of uh, enabled her to break through that. Um, mm. But, yeah, that could have been... There's, there's, know, case, there's cases of mass murderers, though, aren't there? And Well, not mass murderers, sorry, murderers, people who kill people. And, and, and I think there's a famous one in America, I can't remember, where the guy... I killed all his relatives, but then left a suicide note saying, "Please examine my brain. I don't feel right." And they found a tumor on it. So he said, mm. "We're getting to that. We're getting to that stage where we're going to start looking at criminals and go, whose fault is it? Is mm. it theirs, or is it health, or is it society?" Because you know, we know that we're just computers taking inputs. It's proved constantly in your book that you're not very, you're not in control of yourself. Even even sleep deprivation, which you discuss, I know for a fact. If I I have um, depression, I don't have it at the moment. I've you know, I had it for a while, but um, 
I know that my depression can come on if I'm fatigued heavily and I have to sort of, I have to just sort of give up everything and and sleep. Some people don't have the luxury of being able to do that. So they're never getting to the recovery process. And so they're going through life constantly depressed because um, that's not the only reason, by the way, but that is one of the factors for me. So even sleep deprivation, and we know we all get it when we have children. So our personalities change. We change, we change who we are. And so we're getting to that stage where we're going to start looking at people and go, is it their fault? Or is it, you know, is it is it society's fault? Yeah, the blame process and the empathy um, we're going to have to show for people are going to be complex issues in the future. Do you think? <laughs> Sorry to throw that at you. I think I, you know. I think I, I, we we often kind of fetishize the rational mind um, <laughs> that that we exist within a shell that we're a captain of a ship. Yeah, um, we're, we're behind. We're behind our eyes, driving it. We're not, are we? Exactly. <laughs> a little person, you know, like that um, Pixar film, which now yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, I remember, yeah. Uh, we, we should probably see ourselves more as a kind of parliament with all these rowdy competing voices, and sometimes some of these voices turn up to turn up to parliament, and sometimes they remain in their constituency, and sometimes you know, sometimes they lie to us, sometimes they have their own agenda. But all of these things are competing in our minds, you know, and some of them are internal and some of them are external. There are upbringing, there the people around us, there are experiences, um, there the food we eat. Or Look, the- a, good, a, good, a good example of this is languages. And I've got a, I've, I've got a, a good friend who speaks uh, fluently Italian and, and British. The personality changes constantly between the two different sets of languages. And as you say in your book, it, it, it is different the way that you the way you think when you're engaging in whichever language, if you're bilingual, that this, this is another fact that is out there proving that you're very malleable as a person. That that's, that's from your book, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, you can't, it's quite a complicated area. You can think obviously without speaking, without being able to speak and still have thoughts. So it's not like languages completely determine how we think, but they might, influence how we think and what we pay attention to so for example you know if you have many words for a certain color you might be better for i mean for many words for different shades of a certain color you might be better at distinguishing between them than if you just have one for example or um, it will influence how you think about the past and the future whether you have you know a future tense or not and, you know, whether you see temporal events or events in time going from right to left or left to right, depending on which way you're, you, you write in your language. So all these things kind of influence how you think. Um, and so there were some interesting um, stats there showing that, you know, countries that don't have a future tense, like, like my mother tongue, um, Swedish. Um, so you have to sort of specify, I am doing this tomorrow. It's not sort of, I will do, you just, I do tomorrow kind of thing. Um, have seemed to be better at sort of saving <laughs> and perhaps even more progressive because there is no sort of linguistic barrier between <clears throat> the, the present and the future. So the future feels closer to you. It's not mm. some, it's not, I will, like it's happening at a, at a completely different time. It's sort of like close to you. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, um, there is also all sorts of stuff about time where um, we tend to think of time as ahead of us, but in some languages, like I think it's the 
Aymara people in the Bolivian Andes, they see the future as being behind them because you can't see it, so it must be behind you. So when we make gestures about the future in, in Swedish yeah. or Spanish, whatever, we, we gesture forwards, but they would gesture backwards. And in Chinese languages, Mandarin is like up or down uh, on a vertical. So, Miriam, is your first language um, uh, Swedish then? Yes. So do you think in Swedish, when I'm, when I'm speaking to you in English, do you translate it into Swedish? No, in your head? I think I'm, I haven't lived in Sweden for 16 years or so. So I don't, if I'm there and if I, I talk to people in Swedish every day, yes, I will think in Swedish. But if I'm speaking to people in English and I'm here, I normally will think in English. But sometimes it, it swaps over if I've read something in Swedish or, or so. Um, so I wouldn't say I think in Swedish and translate anymore. I probably did for a while, but it at a certain time it kind this of is, becomes fluid. I'm, I'm useless to foreign languages, by the way. But this is this is the bit that that confuses me because I remember hearing about this a, a lot a while ago, and I did a bit of research on it. But apparently, we don't all think the same way. But I'm wondering whether that's just because we can't articulate it. But I definitely don't think in words. I think in pictures, mm. and I and I I don't. I just imagine everything, and I don't see words. So. But some people apparently imagine language. So they're, 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 people say, yeah, you're talking to yourself. But I'm not a talking to myself. I'm, right. see, I'm seeing pictures, but apparently other people are literally talking to themselves. So yes. in their not literally, sorry, they're talking to themselves in their minds. So they're, they're thinking a, a language. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and, and then I thought that must be really hard if that's what you're doing, because if your vocabulary is not as good as Stephen Fry's, you've got a limited amount of, um, of thought <laughs> process. Whereas, whereas I can only think in pictures. So as long as I'm, uh, my eyes are working, then, then I can, I can visualize stuff and create crap in my mind. Well, how do you two think what, what's going on with your brains? I think, I think very much in language. I think, I think people, you know, there is a condition, uh, called, aphantasia which means you're literally blind in your mind's eye <clears throat> so you can't do what you're talking about like visualizing and thinking in picture you literally can't you think in sort of languages or even lists or something you know like that uh and and that's not that uncommon and I think I'm a little bit on that scale like I I prefer thinking in language rather than pictures which also has implications for how you think because as we show in the book if you think in a in a roughly even, most people think in an even mix of pictures and words. Um, if you're very anxious and you think in words, it's really bad because anything that you worry about is sort of worse if you try to put words on it. So it's actually quite helpful to think in pictures uh, if you're finding yourself a bit anxious. Like if you're telling yourself, I don't want to fall off the bike. You know, if you say that over and over and over, um, that just freaks you out because all you can think about is falling off the bike. Whereas if you just see yourself as sort of cycling across the road, um, then um, it doesn't make you as anxious. Mm. But not everyone has a natural sort of ability to to do that. Some people are more stuck in, in thinking in words. Matt, what are you thinking? I think in words and... I think what Miriam just said about the bike is true. That would I was encouraged to do that, isn't it? I do I paraglide, um, so which is a form of free flight, um, and um, it, sometimes my nerves spiral out of control, and it's often I don't want the wing to collapse, I don't want to fall to the ground, and that 
if I think about it verbally, that just goes round and round in my head. I don't want to plummet to the ground. I don't want to plummet to the ground. So instead, I visualize the the wing above me mm. just open, and that's a far easier image. You know, once you hold that image in your head, um, it's far how, easier to overcome. How often do you do it? Um, I probably go every couple of weeks, once a month now. Who's who owns the the parachute? Is it you or the me? Company? Yeah, me. Do you pack your own parachute? Oh no, it's a paraglider, so it's like I know, a, but you, do you do you pack it all away and keep? Are you the one who's looking after it? I look after it, yeah. Yeah, so it's your fault if anything goes wrong. But it's my fault if everything goes wrong. Yeah, absolutely. What's Always it feel is. like? What's it feel like gliding through? Well, it's amazing. You can, you know, you can you run off a hill a hundred feet, a hundred meters high, and and uh thermal using the rising air go up mm. to the clouds and fly for 100 200 kilometers, you know with no engine it's yeah. incredible i love to like do it how, put you in touch with the people who can um how long does it take you to learn how long before you're flying um well you're flying on day one are you oh good i mean yeah, they start they start you on level ground and then they'll slowly move you up a hill and you'll start doing little hops oh and no then that's to, boring to when, do I, when do i get off how long before i get off a cliff like you uh well t- after 10 days you'll generally you have your basic qualification wow so then you could um, quick, right? fly off an alp if you wanted to <laughs> how much they cost uh, those those parachute uh they're about the glider uh the paragliders uh three to four thousand pounds new oh, okay i was wondering do you think it's a lot cheaper than a than a plane yeah <laughs> and also all those golf lessons people take yeah um and- yeah all you need is air and that's air's cheap it doesn't cost anything uh i was thinking reading your book by the way we're coming to the end of the podcast but i was just thinking um uh the use if we didn't have our eyes and ears it would be a lot better because the the stuff which the it's a lot of our problems is the stuff we're looking at isn't it and hearing and and i i think it's a it's a chinese proverb and i can't remember it but it's always said i've mentioned on this podcast before you've got to be careful what comes in you be careful what comes out of you and be careful what goes in you and they're talking about food and then they're talking about the stuff you're putting in your eyes and your ears mm. media and whatever else and and i suppose that <clears throat> i'm reading your book which i recommend people read because there's so much insight into various different things it really gets you thinking but the reality is that you are just what you're sticking inside you aren't you constantly and that's and that and and the eyes and the ears are one of the problems because it's very hard to turn those off so you're witnessing quite a lot and so you know i think you've got to be careful what tv channels you're watching and what sort of um and who you're listening to but um yeah go on sorry no i just think it it's shown over and over that a diversity is really good diversity in terms of many things like who you surround yourself with what you need many different experiences can actually help you think better because you just have more perspective and you don't as easily fall into the trap that this is how it's done you know you can you can also see that you're an outlier sometimes and maybe you want to think about how yeah and i suppose it's also what you don't see as well i was listening someone the other day to Mm. try and talk about aliens and they were saying i love i love talking about ufos or uaps and aliens and stuff i love listening to it all and someone was saying they could be amongst us you know we can't see germs they're all over us we know they're there but we can't see them and you look at think about an eagle or something it can see like a mile away a rodent running we can't and we're blind in comparison to them and different animals can see different things and and you know my cat can smell things i can't smell and the dogs can hear things that i can't hear so we're pretty blind as well to what's going on out there aren't we yeah 
We, I, yeah, going back to that kind of, we fetishize the rational mind, but obviously, despite our baby's heads being enormous to house the brain, uh, they're, they're still not big enough to act, to be able to absorb all of the information all of the time and then make a rational decision about anything. So we're constantly making inferences and shortcuts. Mm. Um, that's the way the brain works. It saves computing power. And these often, you know, are intuitions and are behind our many of our biases. Um, and sometimes these are useful. They allow us to function. Otherwise, we just grind to a stuttering halt. But at the same time, we have to be a bit cautious and wary of them and to see whether where those intuitions or biases are being harmful to us and others. Yeah, we're totally yeah. limited, but we're doing the best. The brain is as smart as, as it can to sort of process all this information and have very little time to make a decision. And that's why it, it takes shortcuts. But And yeah, and that's why that's why all those optical illusions work, don't they? Because our brain yeah. is just going, this is what we this is what I'm seeing. I can't yes. help it. This is what mm. I'm doing. I make it even the, the stupid dress color thing. It's just making it up <laughs> because we know we know our brain's making everything up. Because it apparently only the only time the brain is really optimum function is when someone you're like in a war zone or something or someone's attacking you and suddenly it switches everything on because you need it and everything becomes very clear and slow motion but even when you the sad fact is even when you're driving you're just doing that on autopilot and and if they really knew that they wouldn't let anyone drive a car because no no one's concentrating about ai cars (laughs) (laughs) hey listen uh miriam matt thank you so much for joining me today i thoroughly enjoyed it and i really enjoyed reading your book as well it's it's got me thinking a lot so which is the which is a a great pleasure in life um your book is called are you thinking clearly 29 reasons you aren't and what to do about it fascinating stuff i recommend uh people read it. it's a great read as well because the chapters are, are, are quite concise aren't they so you know you just bang through 29 get you thinking come up with some solutions thank you so much for joining me today thank you thank you, Tim. you. Thank you.